are entering the Freedom Hut. President Trump kicked off his Keep America Great Again campaign last night, talked about the markets, the Socialist Democrats, laid it all out for us, the choice this country has to make in 2020. Is Biden finally slipping? Are his days as the frontrunner in the Democratic Party numbered? We'll have that plus updates on Hong Kong and Epstein and oh so much more coming up on the Buck Sexton Show. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. The United States right now has the hottest economy Anywhere in the world, we're rebuilding that awesome might that we were just talking about, our United States Armed Forces. America is working again, America is winning again, and America is respected again, respected like never before. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. President Trump there, uh giving his view of how things are going in this country. Sure enough, it was a ruckus affair last night at the rally, uh, the Keep America Great rally. I was uh, watching it in real time as it happened. I wish I could have actually been there in that stadium. Uh, those, Those events are full of energy from what I understand. But the president is trying to remind the American people of a few things. One, if the economy stays where it is, and we can't get this guy reelected. That's on us, America. I mean, if if after all that we've seen and the establishment elites telling us that it's going to be terrible if Trump is elected, all these horrible things, none of that has happened. In fact, the opposite has happened. We can either believe the reality that is around us and act on it, or we can believe the false reality that the media tries to foist on us all the time and be led astray with our votes and leadership going forward in this country. The Democrat field is ridiculous. The people that are at the top of that, there are actually some Democrats who I don't find nearly as as disturbing, but they're not even in the top five, not really even in the top ten. And the ones that are serious contenders are unserious uh, unserious as leaders in a capitalist free society based on rule of law. Okay. They are not people that you want to be in charge. Now I understand. I, I had my own concerns when Trump came into office of, okay, he hasn't held office before. He's not a political creature. Will he really be able to do this? Does he understand enough about the functions and mechanisms of government? Well, now we have proof. Now we're going on what year three here of the Trump presidency. And things are going well. Why would we want to switch this up based on now? I know I'm not trying to sway a lot of you. I'm just hopefully if you're listening, this is a good chance, uh, a very high chance that you already are a Trump supporter. But if if Trump had done a terrible, I promise and I know it's easy to say this really is true. If the economy were in awful shape, if we'd started a war with the country for no apparent reason and It was a disaster in America. I mean, if this was like Jimmy Carter part two, 
or if it was more like what we saw in the early Obama years, uh, I'd be saying, look, I, I'm not sure we could. I'm, I'm, I think maybe we got to go third party or, you know, I'd be open to anything. But why would we do that? President Trump has succeeded. He has beat expectations. He has, in fact, made fools of the people who said that he was going to uh, not even last in office. I know the mooch is running. Like, hey, I'm the mooch. And I think that Trump is not even going to. I have. I, Mooch and Omarosa, I think, were on MSNBC together last night. I can't think of two more attention-obsessed people right now. And it, it is it is to Donald Trump's discredit that he put those people in the White House at any point in time. That, that So I'll, I'll be real with you about where the mistakes have been made. But now let's look at the other side for a second. So you've got Trump talking last night about all the things that are going on in this country. He is fighting the fight on immigration. There is new wall being built in some parts of our southern border. Uh, we do have a strong economy, very, uh, very low unemployment. All these things you can point to. And then you go to the other side, and you have Biden, who is so uninspiring as a candidate, who is so weak as the Democrat frontrunner, that now there are stories coming out, and I think it's from the anti-Biden leftists in the Democratic Party who realize that not only do they not like Biden particularly, but he's not going to get it done. There are stories coming out about how Obama has been trying to quietly advise Biden just so that Biden doesn't make a fool of himself and tarnish Obama's legacy. Once again, it, it all comes back to it all comes down to Obama whenever Obama's involved. I mean, that's there is nothing anywhere near as important to Obama as Obama's legacy. Um, but this has been what I've been telling you all along. It's not going to be Biden. It's too he's too old. He's too undisciplined. He's uninspiring. And the reason that he has been at the forefront of this, the reason that he is the number one of the polls is because people think of him uh, as Obama's right-hand man and the Democrats love Obama. They forget that the vice president doesn't really do very much and Biden was kind of a whoever's the closest and will fit the role vice president pick. Never got above 5%, I think, in any poll when he ran for president in 2008. In a lot of polls, he was at like 1%, 2%. I mean, he was in Marianne Williamson territory in 2008. And now he's been the front runner for a while. But you've seen Elizabeth Warren uh, chipping away steadily at his at his lead. And that makes perfect sense. I mean, if you're going to go with someone that's going to be able to stand, that's going to be able to make a, a real case against Trump, it has to be an individual that you're not worried is going to say that you choose truth over facts or is constantly a, a gaffe machine. You know what you know what they've been thinking about doing? is scaling back his schedule, Biden's schedule, and making sure that he has fewer things later in the day because they're worried that that's when he's making more of his mistakes. I mean, why don't they ask if Biden needs to make sure he has a blankie and a sippy cup with him all the time? And this is what it's already turned into. And these are the people around him who are trying to help him. These are his advisors. But you've known all along that there was a problem here. Biden has always been a demagogue, an empty suit, nothing impressive about him, on the wrong side of every foreign policy issue for 35 years. Just almost like like clockwork. Whatever Biden thinks, that's the wrong thing. And even when there were other Democrats 
who were pretty much outright calling Biden a racist. Barack Obama, the first black president, the president that Obama, that Biden served under for eight years, did not feel the need to intervene in the Democratic Party. Obama is still the most powerful Democrat in the country, and he doesn't even really do anything these days. He didn't feel the need to intervene, though, and say, guys, come on, Joe Biden's not a racist. Let's not let's not get crazy. Michelle Obama, when asked about it, was like, no, I don't want to get involved. Let's not get crazy. Um, that's quite a thing to do to somebody that was right there with you for eight years. Your right hand man, the person that, you know, heaven forbid, if anything had happened to Obama with his health or anything else, Biden would have had to step in. And you can't say a word and not only won't endorse him. Forget. I mean, yeah, that's not even even happening a little bit. Not going to endorse him. But won't stick up for him when his character is under full fledged assault on an issue that Obama could more than any other person really in the country could say, stop that. Knock that off. That's not who Joe Biden is. Cut it out. Won't do it. And now they're talking about scaling back his schedule because he's, you know, too much of a gaffe machine. Here's here's the thing. The media, they they don't ever learn from their mistakes. The whole gaffe machine. Oh, that's just Joe being Joe thing was a creation that they made for Biden to excuse him during the Obama years. And what's so interesting is that the mainstream media now is protecting Biden with that same narrative instead of understanding that the gaffes that he is making are red flags about why he should not be their candidate. They're protecting him in this process without understanding that it's self-defeating. Some of them are starting to figure this out, but that's why I've been saying, oh, Biden will not be the guy. Biden, remember, Trump got out to a lead and never, never, let, never turned back, never lost his lead. Biden's going to lose his lead. That's going to be all she wrote. And Warren, I think, is going to be the one who takes it from him. And we're more on the Trump economy. And then um, I didn't even get into the Rashida Tlaib and uh, Ilhan Omar stuff today. Maybe I'll get into some of that. Um, it's possible I'll get into some of that. I mean, here's a short version. The organization that they were going to go visit with is a deeply anti-Semitic organization out in uh, the West Bank. And turns out that Rashida Tlaib, when when it's offered to her by the Israeli government, yeah, you can visit your grandma, but you just can't hang out with a bunch of anti-Semites in the West Bank who want to destroy Israel and, and advocate for the BDS campaign on their behalf. She's like, actually, psych, I guess I don't want to see grandma anymore. Wow. I don't know what kind of relationship we're talking about there, but that does not seem like it doesn't seem like Rashida Tlaib was being very honest, does it, folks? Tlaib and Omar, the, the left supports them, protects them, panders to them, does everything that it can for reasons that we've talked about so many times on the show. But we'll talk more about the, like I said, the Trump economy. Oh, Epstein, the uh, latest. Oh, here we go. The Epstein thing. We'll get into that. The uh, autopsy says that he did kill himself. So there's that. But that's not the end of the story. We'll be right back. If for some reason I wouldn't have won the election, these markets would have crashed. And that'll happen even more so in 2020. You have no choice but to vote for me because your 401ks, down the tubes, everything's going to be down the tubes. So whether you love me or hate me, you got to vote for me. Love me or hate me, you got to vote for me. Trump just, I mean, he he put on quite a show last night. I, I was uh, at, 
<laughs> Man, I was at Fox. I was supposed to do Tucker's show last night, and I'm actually going to be doing Tucker's show tonight at uh, about uh, 8 Eastern. And uh, I, I was supposed to do Tucker's show, but t- Trump, you know, look, he's leader of the free world. At a certain point, when he's when he's on a roll, you're like, I don't want to interrupt this guy. I want to, the, the audience needs to hear what the leader of the free world is saying, not not me chirping in and saying, oh, I like what Trump said. Uh, but, you know, I was there last night. I was just thinking, they really think they're going to put some of these Democrat candidates up against this guy? You know, right now, because there's no real head-to-head comparison uh, it seems like maybe the, the Democrats can cling to this belief that some much stronger, better candidate will emerge from within their field. You know, somebody who's really battle tested and, and ready for what lies ahead and, and all that kind of stuff. And when you see Trump last night, he just puts on such a more compelling show and it, the, the visual, the the way that he lays out his vision for the country I mean, Elizabeth Warren is just is just not in the same universe as a a talent in politics. It's just it's just not the same kind of thing. It's just the lack of inspiration. And, you know, they don't have anybody who in pure star power matches up even a little bit against Donald Trump. And that's not even really taking into account the fact that he's an incumbent president, leader of the free world and has done a good job, which is what we, I keep coming back to this. Why would people were going to vote against Trump? Why? Because they the libs keep saying he's racist and he says mean things on Twitter. That's so. So you want to maybe send the economy into a tailspin by having some of these crazy policies, Green New Deal and you know, Medicare for all having long discussions and, and legislative battles and then perhaps even the enactment of these crazy policies all the economic pain and dislocation that's going to create because the media says Trump is racist. Now, now, whenever I say what has Trump said that's racist, they always point to Charlottesville and they're lying about what he said. Or they say he called Mexicans, uh, Mexicans, rapists and, and murderers. And when you go and listen to what he was talking about, he's saying that there are he was saying that there are rapists and murderers who are coming across our border, which is a fact. They're not all. He said, and some, I think, are good people. Now, he was being a little flippant there, but nobody really thinks the president believes that every Mexican who comes across the border is a rapist, a murderer, or a criminal of any kind. No one really believes that, but they pretend to believe that because, again, this is one of the uh, one of the foundational Trump is a racist talking points. But that's what the storyline is. That's what they offer you. Oh, he's such a racist. So you you. You can't vote for him. It's not even really up to you. It's not even a a choice. So Trump is pushing back into their face. Oh, really? Guess what? Even if you don't like me, even if you think my tweets are sometimes a little bit out of line and and shouldn't be what they are, you're going to put the other guys in charge? It's just going to hurt you, the American voter, the American people. You're going to put someone in charge. Look at who the Democrats, the, the serious Democrat candidates for office are a series of people who know nothing about economics, nothing about running a business. I mean, look at what we're talking about. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Joe Biden. These are all bureaucrats. They are all, in their own way, swamp creatures. They're people that are from and within the Democrat machinery and the system. 
They don't know. They don't know how to actually run anything meaningfully. They've never had to answer to the market, to shareholders. Their careers have been about their careers been about themselves and their power and the acquisition and the wielding of power. They're gonna put them. You want to put them in charge of the economy? You think that? Remember, it's not just the person; it's who they're gonna surround themselves with. I mean, AOC's economic advisors are more or less the same as Bernie Sanders' economic advisors, and those people are crazy. They're socialists. They don't understand how things work. They don't know the history of socialism and its failures. They have all these pie-in-the-sky ideas. It's like when I had, we had a socialist. I don't remember the name of the, of the show the guy was on, but we had a socialist from one of those digital networks uh, who came on when I was on with Crystal Ball and Rising saying that, well, we're going to save... Their, their talking point for Medicare for All is we're going to save all this money because the bureaucracy is going to be a lot smaller. Does anyone really believe... Oh, the government's going to get nimble and going to save us a lot of money? Who, who thinks that this is reality? I mean, this is laughable. This is not this is not a serious position. But if you want government that is more look, government is always going to be slothful and wasteful. And there's a lot of stuff that we're never really going to be able to change, which is why we try to limit it and have it only do certain things and make sure that there are we'd like to have accountability measures in place. Really, all we have are elections, which don't necessarily function in the realm of accountability the way that they should. But. If you want the continuation of what we've had, which is markets that are just galloping higher and higher and record low in beyond my lifetime, record low unemployment and no new unnecessary wars and not getting pushed around by third world tin pot dictatorships. People say, oh, look what he's done with North Korea. We haven't given North Korea anything other than meetings and high fives from Trump that I agree are a little weird, but there's no concrete takeaway for North Korea. Nothing. Because we keep the sanctions in place. So just look at what they told you was going to happen if Trump came into office. The opposite has happened. And look at what the Democrats are telling you will happen if they come into office. And keep in mind, the opposite will happen, meaning that the country won't be more prosperous. It will be worse off. Trump knows this, which is why he says, you got to vote for me or it's just going to hurt you. When we allow this country to be defined along lines of race and ethnicity and religion. We allow a commander-in-chief to not only welcome that, but the violence that follows to defy our laws, our institutions, and any ethical or moral boundaries. The end of that road is the end of this idea of America, the end of an America where every single one of us could belong and have a future. I'm confident that if at this moment we do not wake up to this threat, then we as a country will die in our sleep. I'm like totally like believing that like unless you guys elect me to be the president, even though I kind of remind you of the dumb guy in your college class that like always raised his hand and everybody was like, oh my God, is he going to speak again? It's always like a speech that he thinks we're going to clap after he's done. But like the country has no future unless it votes for Beto and agrees that Trump is a white nationalist. This guy is a clown. A clown. 
he really does think that every time he gets a chance to speak, it's like he's the the character in an Aaron Sorkin movie who gets to lecture the audience about you know how wonderful liberals are or something you know and, and how terrible Republicans are. It's why I could never watch The West Wing for more than an episode or two. It's the same thing. It's always up. Here it comes. Here comes the the soaring instrumental music in the background, and now we get to be told in in really sanctimonious self-righteous tones about how liberals are the best and conservatives suck. It's basically what uh, what you hear from Beto here. Uh, that that we're going as a country, if we do not wake up to this threat, we're going to die in our sleep. What country does he think he's living in? This country is fine. This country is doing well. This country feels much more hopeful and, and prosperous and you know, than it did when when Obama was running the show. A lot of, you know, a lot of really nasty stuff happened during the Obama years. You go back, you had the rise of ISIS. You had the slowest recovery from a recession since World War II. You had anti-police race riots in the streets. You know, a lot of, like, you had some mass casualty terror attacks with the hands of jihadists going on with, with pretty serious frequency. Uh, there's a lot of bad stuff going on. All the fights over Obamacare, all that stuff over Obamacare, just so they could make us a little bit more socialist with our health care, you know, as, as if that was really, if it, it wasn't even worth all the time, effort, and, and, and everything else that we had to put into the argument over it. They didn't even end up going as far with Obamacare as they said they were going to go because it was such a crappy idea. You got, you know, Beto running around just thinking about how he can say the crazy stuff, trying to get the, the you know, left-wing... Daily Co's, HuffPost, Slate.com readership excited about his candidacy. Here, here's the question that Beto O'Rourke can't I mean, We should call him Robert, I know. Here's the question that Beto O'Rourke can't answer. Why? Why would we vote for you, dude? What exactly about Beto O'Rourke is interesting or impressive or inspiring enough that anybody should vote for? Because he does what so well? Auditions for a contributorship on MSNBC? Because that's what it sounds like every time this guy opens his mouth. And you know who's actually disappointed me? Because I figured maybe with his resume, service to his country, uh, you know, I thought maybe he'd be a little bit more. Look, there are, I don't hate all the Democrats. Let me just get this out there. I don't hate the Democrats across the board. First of all, I don't hate any of them. I don't know them. But I, I, know, I, I don't look on their positions with pure derision and and disdain across the board. You know, I think Andrew Yang is wrong, but he seems like a nice guy. And he's got some pretty interesting ideas. And I think he does want to help the country. He's just wrong about how to do it. I think the crystals and healing and spiritual embolden, emboldening lady, uh, Marianne Williamson, you know, I think that she's kind of an interesting celebrity type and, uh, you know, whatever. I mean, she doesn't seem like a bad lady. She gave me a nice hug at the Bill Maher show. I kind of like her. She's kooky, but I like her. Um, and if I'm going to get like an astrological reading, I want to go to her. I think Tulsi Gabbard is is a, is a an earnest, somewhat reasonable human being. I think her policy positions are wrong, but you know she's straight. You know, I think that the guy uh, Delaney from Maryland, I'd vote for him long before I'd vote for Joe Biden. He seems pretty sharp. He's not a dumb guy. Self made, multi multi millionaire, legitimately self made. Anyway. So I don't hate all the Democrats' ideas. I, I don't just dismiss them out of hand. I thought Mayor Pete 
would be less of a sanctimonious pain in the neck than he is. But this guy, it just he, first of all, he looks utterly joyless all the time. He, he looks like somebody just gave him, you know, a rotten egg to chew on. I mean, he's just not a fun guy to, to he has, there's nothing inspiring about him. And when he goes into this Pope Pete stuff with all of his, uh, his version of, you know, Christian religious philosophy, then I really am like, this guy is out, out of his mind. But, you know, he's also trying to get the left wing base fired up behind him. So he says the same kind of mindless stuff. And I think he's smart. He's just, I don't know, he's just not very likable. Play six. How can this president keep us safe from white nationalist violence if he won't admit that it's a problem? How can Washington keep us safe from the security threat that climate change poses if they're not willing to say that it's even real? That's a security issue. And so is gun safety. We can act in ways that are completely compatible with the Constitution to make sure that we keep guns out of the wrong hands. Washington has not gotten it done, but it falls on us to make sure that we do because that is a security issue for the people we love and care about. How can Washington keep us safe from the security threat that climate change poses if they're not willing to say it's real? What does that even mean? The security threat that climate change poses. What is the security threat that climate change poses? Also known as weather. Yeah, there can be storms, there can be earthquakes, there can be tornadoes. What what is the federal government, other than having a disaster relief agency in place and trying to make durable buildings, oh, they want us to completely and utterly change our economy so that, the, by the way, the Chinese are not going to change squat. They're not going to change anything. They're just going to keep doing exactly what they're doing, emissions that they're putting out. People go, oh, the Chinese are ahead of us in terms of solar. The Chinese are ahead making solar because they're selling it to us and the Europeans. <sighs> Mayor Pete, not interesting as a candidate. Delaney, I'll tell you this, Delaney comes across as a smarter person all the time than Mayor Pete. So I, I can, you know, I can distinguish between these Democrats. Beto and Pete need to go. The executive order I'm signing is not an impulsive decision made in the wake of the recent mass shootings. Rather, it's the result of months of work by my administration, working with partners to find real, tangible solutions that focus on reducing gun violence, on reducing the number of people killed and terrorized by guns in our commonwealth. The Second Amendment does not supersede the inalienable right we all have to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Every human being, every Pennsylvanian is endowed with these rights. And it's my duty, and it's all of our duty, to protect them for every Pennsylvanian. That's what this executive order is all about. So now the First Amendment, I suppose, could also be nullified because, you know, you could say something mean to someone and that interferes with their pursuit of happiness. He said something mean to me and now I'm not happy. That's my, that's my unalienable right. He uses First Amendment to hurt my happiness. Well, Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf is using his First Amendment right to hurt my happiness with his crap on gun control with uh, his executive action here. He's just, as, as the governor of, of Pennsylvania deciding he's going to take it upon himself to 
fight the scourge of gun violence with an with an anti Second Amendment uh, executive order. I looked up. I was trying to find out the specifics on this. I went to the Pennsylvania governor's website, and it says. It's a lot of like, blah, blah, making communities safer, fighting gun violence, blah, blah. They don't, let's say fighting, but, you know, reducing the nearly, here's the actual verbiage from the Pennsylvania governor's website. The nearly two dozen new initiatives and reforms directed under the order fall into four primary categories. New oversight and data sharing, reducing community gun violence, combating mass shootings, Addressing the rising number of gun-related domestic incidents and self-inflicted shootings, including suicides by guns. I then looked deeper into this. I thought, okay, well, that all sounds like it could be good. Except, what does that mean? What does that mean? Reducing community gun violence. That tells me nothing. Oversight and data sharing. How is that going to reduce gun violence? Combating mass shootings. Pretty sure we already try to do that with law enforcement when there is a mass shooting. Addressing the rising number of gun-related domestic incidents. Addressing how? This is, this is a perfect example. I mean, this, this guy uh, who's the governor of Pennsylvania, who I've, I will be honest, I had never seen before this week. I don't spend much time thinking about the governor of a state I don't live in. Um, here we go. This, I'm trying to see if, if someone can give me some specifics on this. That would be really, really helpful. Uh, what do we have here? The executive order targets all this stuff and that stuff. New initiatives, violence prevention and reduction. Everyone keeps got a sweeping executive order on gun violence, Pennsylvania uh, governor. This is in the Hill. It doesn't tell us anything. There's, you know, if, if he has such a good idea, I mean, I really mean this. If, if he knows how to stop gun violence, violence in communities, suicides, I would really like to know what they are. But you see, the real purpose of this, the reason a guy like this Governor Tom Wolf signs, who is really hurting the Tom Wolf name, great author, Bonfire of the Vanities, among other things. But the reason that, that politicians do this isn't because realistically they think it's going to stop any gun violence. They do it because they want to sign something, get on TV and talk about how they're reducing gun related deaths and addressing the terrible gun violence and just using all these verbs that are effectively meaningless. This is what happens. There was a tragedy. A terrible thing happened a few times over recently. Mass shootings. There's a an emotionally driven outrage. And then we get into a policy discussion And the reason we don't have more gun control policies is because we already have a lot of gun control policies. And there's no reason to believe that additional policies would stop any of the mass shootings. All they would do is annoy lawful gun owners and infringe on their rights. That's it. We can keep returning to this discussion over and over. It doesn't mean that because we've already talked about it, we should come to a different conclusion than we did the 10 times before this. The reason the left keeps losing at the national level the discussion about gun control after a mass shooting is that they don't have good ideas to stop mass shootings that we are unwilling to work with them on. They just have ideas that are driven by their distaste for gun owners, for the NRA, 
and the Second Amendment in general. And we know that. So we don't go along with them. Now, President Trump, I will say, is still now I, I have a theory about this that I'm going to share with you in a second about Trump and red flag laws and background checks. He's still talking about possible background checks, folks. Here's what he said today. Play five. And you've been reading about this a lot lately. We are working very hard to make sure we keep guns out of the hands of insane people and those who are mentally sick and shouldn't have guns. But people have to remember, however, that there is a mental illness problem that has to be dealt with. It's not the gun that pulls the trigger. It's the person holding the gun. Now, look, he's right on that. It's not the gun. It's the person pulling the trigger. It's absolutely true. That's why you have hundreds of millions of guns in circulation and you have thousands of, of actual gun-involved murders in any given year. Probably about, uh, I think it's 15,000, 16,000 homicides with a handgun any, or ha- with the firearms any given year. And then another... 16 or 17,000 suicides, I think, maybe. I think my numbers are right. Something like that. But he's talking about background checks here. I don't think he really believes that we're going to do anything on background checks, but Trump realizes that right now the politics are very, there's a lot of heat over this. There's a lot of emotion. And so, all right, sure, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. And he knows that by saying, and this, I think this is politics. I don't think it's it's overly cynical. I think he understands that by uh, suggesting that he has a willingness to talk about this issue, that then neutralizes some of the ferocity directed at Republicans and at Trump about this issue that's just driven by partisan anger and, and jockeying for political power. He goes, all right, all right, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. You know, within two weeks, people are less likely to have their interest as focused on this one. I think that's a part of it. And the mental illness problem, yeah, of course, we should address mental illness, but here's where that falls apart. Address it how? That's an easy thing to say, but what are we really going to do? We're going to make it easier to commit people? Okay, that may sound like a good idea in cases like Nicholas Cruz and, and, uh, and others who were clearly deranged and very, very dangerous before they even did anything. What about a more borderline cases? How many possibly dangerous people do you want to let uh, let remain free instead of putting one person who's really not a danger at all, but who's just had a very tough time and is struggling with mental health issues in a mental facility uh, against their will? They're very serious questions. This is also why I understand a lot of you on the red. Look, you guys, it's like I'm a member of Congress and you lit up my switchboard. You're like, nope, red flag laws, Buck. Bad idea. Don't do it. Looked at it. Looked at where they already have them. How many shootings they've stopped. What it would likely mean if we had this at the federal level. You're right. It's not going to save anybody. It's not going to stop anyone. By the time someone has been clearly a danger to others in a way that a red flag law would be applicable, they've usually broken other crime, broken other laws. So enforcing laws on the books like you can't threaten to kill people or you can't threaten to do something, uh, a terroristic act against a school or another facility, that's a better way to go for us. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. There is a recurring theme on this show and conservative media in general. There is a thing that we often talk about. 
and it is that the mainstream media is biased. That you cannot trust, that they don't have an agenda, that you cannot believe them when they say they just want to present you with the facts that they are propaganda organs. They are advocates for different policies and and for a belief system. And that belief system we refer to as liberalism, but it is really socialism and statism and uh, leftism. And those are all terms that we could spend time defining, but I won't for our purposes right now. You know what I'm talking about. New York Times, a left-wing paper. And we hear this on the right. We talk about this, and, and there's always this, this sneering contempt from the, uh, the elites or the elitists who read the New York Times, who write for the New York Times, who own the New York Times, that, oh, well, that's just, this is just a gripe that people on the, on the right make about these things. That they don't really know. And by the way, I've been a New York Times subscriber, and I probably shouldn't admit this because I am supporting them economically, but I've been a subscriber for years and years and years and years. I mean, I read the New York Times every day. Not all of it, but I read articles from the New York Times every day. I usually check out their front page, see what they got going on. And it's largely because I like to know what the dominant left-wing newspaper has to say about things because that's where the rest of the left-wing media often gets its marching orders. So it's like reading the memo that they're sending out to the rest of the company, like, hey, guys, here's the main position you need to take on this. And I'm talking about the front page. I'm not even talking about editorial because you can see the way that they uh, the way that they headline stories, the way they write about different important things happening in the country. But they are also creating constantly creating a narrative. You've heard me say that the news is a narrative. There's no such thing as an as an objective news cycle or a truly objective news source because the single most powerful decision really is the decision what to cover and what not to cover. What do you spend time on and what do you skip over? That's an incredibly important thing that is done every day in every newsroom. But I bring you now really clear from the top of the New York Times, I mean, really clear evidence. This is Exhibit A for the bias that we talk about in the news media. And, you know, I, I understand that you already know. If you listen to the show, you're already aware of the fact that the New York Times, a left-wing paper, it's biased. But even when they will admit it, they will then pretend later on, oh, no, that's not true. We're not that. We're not advocates for one cause or another. But the truth is they very much are. Um, here's what comes up in the, this. This was Dean. I think it's Dean Baquet, or it could be Backet. I don't know how to say his name. It's B-A-Q-U-E-T. We'll say Baquet because that's the way in French it would be. Monsieur Baquet. Um, Dean Baquet uh, said the following in a town hall to the New York Times. This is after also they had that and Trump tweeted about this. They had a demotion of their one of their more senior editors. It wasn't fired. It was demoted for stuff he did on Twitter. Twitter gets a lot. A lot of people get in hot water with Twitter. I mean, I think it's been fantastic because it's been an invitation for dishonest left wing journalists to tell us what they really think and who they really are all the time. And then they can't take it back. And there's no editorial lens to remove they're very clearly partisan judgments, right? It's just what they want to say. 
But in the New York Times town hall, there's a transcript of it, which you can see online if you want. I mean, I've already read through it, so I'll tell you the best parts of it. Here is what the guy running the New York Times newsroom right now had to say. He said, uh, okay, I mean, let me go back a little bit for one second just to repeat what I said in my short preamble about coverage. Chapter one of the story of Donald Trump, not only for our newsroom, but frankly for our readers was, did Donald Trump have untoward relationships with the Russians and was there obstruction of justice? That was a really hard story, by the way. Let's not forget that. We set ourselves up to cover that story. I'm going to say it. We won two Pulitzer Prizes covering that story, and I think we covered that story better than anybody else. The day Bob Mueller walked off that witness stand, two things happened. Our readers who want Donald Trump to go away suddenly thought, holy crap, Bob Mueller is not going to do it. And Donald Trump got a little emboldened politically, I think, because, you know, for obvious reasons. And I think that the story changed. A lot of the stuff we're talking about started to emerge like six or seven weeks ago. We're a tiny bit flat footed. I mean, that's what's really happening when a story looks a certain way for two years, right? Folks, here you have the person who is in charge, in charge of the New York Times newsroom. I mean, what at the end, you know, he's the guy at the end of the day who makes the final determination about things. And he's telling you that one, the readership of the New York Times had an expectation that Donald Trump is uh, was was going to get kicked out of office by Mueller, and that that and that that was the story, and that was their narrative. I mean, they were constructing this; they were invested in this, in this belief. The readership was, and therefore, guess what? The newsroom was. And now he says they're flat-footed. Why would they be flat-footed unless there was an agenda? Plenty of news, plenty of things going on. There's a Democratic primary. There's a... Oh, they lost their mojo for a minute, so to speak, because guess what? They don't have the primary anti-Trump narrative that they were relying on for two years, that they were building for two years, and that they thought was going to result in the destruction of a presidency. I think they really believed that, by the way. I think they thought that this was going to be Nixon all over again, and they'd be in a position to take down Trump with their coverage of him. Um, And here you go. Here's more. Oh, you know how I was saying, oh, look at how Russia collusion is no longer a news story they're talking about? And now guess what? Now it's all racism, racism, racism. You saw that in this town hall as well. Dean Baquet makes it very clear that, well, if it's not going to be Russia collusion, that's our main area of assault against the Trump administration and against Donald Trump personally trying to tear him down. Then they're going to go with race. Uh, Quote, I do not think that race and understanding of race should be a part of how we cover Oh, sorry, I rather I do think that race and understanding of race should be a part of how we cover the American story. Sometimes news organizations sort of forget that in the moment. No, they don't. But of course it should be. I mean, one reason we all signed off on the 1619 project and made it so ambitious and expansive was to teach our readers to think a little bit more like that. 
race in the next year, and I think this is, to be frank, what I'd hope you'd come away with this discussion with, race in the next year is going to be a huge part of the American story. And I mean race in terms of not only African Americans and their relationship with Donald Trump, but Latinos and immigration. And I think that one of the things that I'd love to come out with is for people to feel very comfortable coming to me and saying, here's how I would like you to consider telling that story. Because the reason you have a diverse newsroom, to be frank, is so you can pull people together to try to, uh, you can have people pull together to try to tell that story. I think that's the closest I can come to. How does he know race? I mean, you know, race is going to be a huge part of the of the discussion next year. Let me tell you something. Let me, let me skip to the end of this. That's because the New York Times is going to make it a huge part of the discussion of the next year. Because this is the the moral tale they want to tell about Donald Trump. He is a racist. If you support him, you're a racist. Therefore, you must support his political opponents. You are, for reasons of conscience, not permitted to be a Trump supporter in the world the New York Times is constructing. And this is, this is just, a, as I've been saying, a perfect example of exactly what we talk about time and time again on the show, which is that there is a, a very obvious, once you understand what you're looking for, what's at stake for the different sides, there's a very obvious agenda at work. And the agenda for the New York Times is the destruction of Donald Trump and creating narratives, writing news stories, putting information out there that serves that end. The objective is not making sure their readers know what's going on in the world and what's happening that they need to know about. They're not just telling them about things. They're telling them how to think about things. He even says that, you know, how we think about race in the, in the New York Times newsroom. How we as a country think about race. That, that's, I mean, you would think that a, a news organization would say, we're supposed to tell stories about what is happening, not deciding what should happen and then write stories to fit that agenda. And that is what they do. And that's why when Trump calls them the fake news, he's correct. That's one of my favorite things. I, I would argue in some ways my favorite thing about Donald Trump is that the Mainstream media's pretense of being objective and neutral observers, it will not last beyond a Trump presidency. Does anyone think that the next time around that there's a, a non-Trump president that we're going to just start to say, oh, yeah, CNN and MSNBC and these places, they're really, they're really honest. They're honest brokers in this whole process. Of course not. Of course not. The New York Times is going to be a, a newspaper that isn't Clearly, I mean, it, it's not just left wing. It gets more and more left wing all the time. It is now turned into a hard left newspaper that also does some reporting. That's really what it is. So and I, I wanted to share with you that town hall just because we're not crazy, folks. We see them for who they are. And what I tell you here on this show about the left wing media is all true. Splurger, splurger, splurger. Who wants to buy Greenland? Splurger, splurger, splurger. It turns out that there's a little bit of pushback here to the president of the United States' suggestion. He has any, it's not like he's put in a bid. You know, it's not like he's already written out a check in the memo line for Greenland because it's cold. Uh, you know, we're just talking about it, folks. Just having a conversation. What's wrong with trying to work through this, trying to see where, we, where we're at. 
as they say, as the kids say. Uh, you know, Danish politicians are now mocking the report that Donald Trump wants to buy Greenland. Quote, if he is truly contemplating this, then this is final proof that he has gone mad. That's what's being said. Now, let me tell you something. These Danish politicians who are effectively the equivalent of your local dog catcher, right? I mean, they, they're the, whoever the governor of uh, Greenland is rules over a total of 50,000 people. So it's really not, this is not something to be too impressed about. But <laughs> rules with an iron fist over the frozen wasteland. All those reindeer better know what they're doing. Better, better stay in line. Uh, this is the thing. If you don't want Donald Trump to try to come up with an offer to buy your small uh, population, but very large landmass country, Greenland is the largest island in the world. Isn't that interesting? Larger than Australia, which I was surprised to see, but apparently the largest island in the world. Now, a lot of it's covered in ice, and the only settlements on it were uh, Viking settlements. We'll talk more about Vikings later on. Uh, but uh, Greenland is best known for its fishing uh, exports, so, so it sends fish, I think mostly maybe halibut and cod, I think. I don't know. I don't know that much about fish, but... They shouldn't be poking the bear with Trump because the more you have people coming out saying, you can't buy Greenland, he's going to say, he's going to say, what can't I buy Greenland? Greenland's very cold. It's very large. It's a great place for Trump Tower. You know, he could totally do it. You know, he could actually make it happen. Can you imagine Trump Tower Greenland? I mean, I've already seen some. I've seen some of the memes. I've seen the memes. They're out there. Um. Here's my theory of how we could make this happen, though. I don't think it's really that complicated. I've, I've drawn upon a little of my former uh, intelligence experience. Here's what we could do. If we really wanted Greenland, which would, you know, remember, we, what, we bought uh, Alaska. It was Seward's Folly uh, back in, what was it, the 1860s, I think. We bought Alaska. We're like, hey, Russia. We're going to buy this from you. And they're like, they're all like, yes, you can buy it. It's very large, very cold, like the rest of Russia. The thing about Russia is they got a lot of land, a lot of cold land. They didn't really care. So we bought Alaska from the Ruskies. It's a good deal. If we wanted Greenland, and by the way, I'm just kidding about all this Greenland stuff. I had people today on Twitter. I was making Greenland jokes. They're like, what do you mean? They have autonomy. Why are you undermining Greenland's sovereignty? It's like, dude, just calm down. We're not really going to buy Greenland, but are we going to institute a coup in Greenland? I don't know. I don't know. They, I saw today somebody somebody wrote that the assessment for what Greenland would cost was a billion or the assessment for what Greenland would cost was a billion dollars. And I was like, that's not even uh, that's not even a little bit too much money. If history is any guide. The autonomous Danish territory is worth at least a billion. That was the headline on CNN today. I'm not making this up. A billion? We could do that with a GoFundMe campaign. Who wants to buy Greenland? I mean, I could probably start it. I'd be the new... The governor of Greenland doesn't sound cool enough. I'd have to be the ultimate ninja warlord of Greenland. That'd be kind of fun. And I would go everywhere in a giant sled taken by reindeer. Reindeer with bazookas on them. See, we could have fun with this. But if I were going to be the one instituting a coup in Greenland, this wouldn't be that hard. We can almost do a paint-by-numbers with this. 
You just buy up key property in Greenland's populated areas. You establish financial ties to local power brokers, fishermen, fish export companies. You distribute a little anti-Danish propaganda. You know, leaflets uh, via reindeer courier would certainly work. Then you have an independence referendum. How hard is that to be? What, do you got to get probably five or 10,000 votes of the voting population there? Well, I don't know. Maybe they'd all vote. But it's only 50,000 inhabitants. You win that independence referendum, and then bam, 51st state, Greenland. All the resources, all the fish, all the salted herring you could ever want, folks. Courtesy of our new state, Greenland. We'd have to, by the way, also, we'd have to come up with a cooler name for it. Because Greenland, there's no truth in advertising here. It's not green. It's not, not good. And we are, there's already an Iceland, so we can't, uh, we can't change that one up. So I'm just saying, I mean, is, is buying Greenland, is it really, is it the craziest thing you've heard ever? No. Is it likely to happen? Of course not. But I think we could have some fun with this one. What are some other territories, some other properties we should really think about uh, purchasing? I mean, it's probably time we just tell Canada, you know what, Canada, it's been fun, but this whole, like, you guys are a separate country thing, we're going to just make you a U.S. territory. You don't get to vote. Canada will be like Puerto Rico. You're, you're, not, you're, not, you're not voting, but you're a U.S. territory. I think that'd be kind of fun. You know, we let them run their internal affairs. It'd be like our version of what China has with Hong Kong. One country, two systems, you know, except you could keep your Canadian health care and all that. But no, no, the Canadians are listening to this like, oh, no, eh? We don't want that. We don't want to be one country with America. You, oh, very, you people are very rude sometimes down there. Yeah. So that's probably true. You know, I'm from New York. We get, we're a little different than the, than the uh, Canucks. Up to the north. All right, we'll be right back. Keep America great because we have these socialists who want to take it away from us. They want to take it away. I never said China was going to be easy, but it's not tough. And they want to make a deal. We just spoke to them yesterday. They want to make a deal. They want to make a deal. They have to make a deal. He's saying China's not going to be easy. Well, that's good that he recognized that because that was always going to be the case. And he said, look, you know, you, you got to give me time to figure this whole thing out. You got to give me time to get this done the way it needs to get done. But I would, I know we've talked about this before, team, but let's, let's be very clear about this. Until this president, who we were told didn't understand economics, you know, ran casinos into bankruptcy, blah, blah, all this stuff you were told that I had no idea what he was doing. He is, he has on the fundamental question of should we continue our current trading practice uh, trading practices and economic relationship with China Trump was right and the intelligentsia especially here in DC and and in New York uh, was wrong their view was well we should just continue with what with the way things are we don't want to rock the boat at all you know we we just want Things to just go along and it's there's nothing to see here. No big problem. No, no worries. And Trump is like, no, how about we shouldn't allow the Chinese to rip us off continuously? How about that shouldn't be our approach to trade with China? We've also been told the tariffs, if we have tariffs, we're going to be in a trade war. So, so let's let's just review. They said, don't do anything. Trump's crazy. The trade surplus that China has with us is no big deal. Who cares? It's fine. They're just giving us cheap stuff and we want cheap stuff. There's no downside. That was among conservatives. Conventional wisdom. 
And, oh, a tariff is a tax. Okay, well, we're paying taxes to them, and they're not paying taxes to us. So what do we do that when we're, we're working with the Chinese? And, oh, if there are tariffs, it's going to destroy the U.S. economy, going to be huge problems. Well, let's see. Play clip four. Tariffs have really bitten into, ch- into us at all, uh, except for the reporters that want to make it look that way, but they don't understand what's happening. The tariffs, we've taken in close to $60 billion in tariff money, and the consumer has not paid for it. Now, at some point, they may have to pay something. He's like, look, there's going to be some trade-offs here. There's going to be plenty of reason for us down the line to evaluate and reevaluate where we are, sure. But right now, we're trying to create pressure on China. See, this is one one problem you have, and this comes from the State Department, the culture there, uh, the international relations schools in this country and, and diplomacy as a general, just as a general discipline, involves a lot of people who are, one, globalists. They really are. Uh, they believe in the one world government. They'd rather be working for the U.N. than working on U.S. interests abroad. And also they think that the U.S. exerting its power to get a better deal for itself is not a good thing. You know, sure, we should make noise about human rights in other countries. I mean, I'm talking about the, the general mindset in diplomatic circles, of the State Department, the people that are involved in this stuff. They think, oh, we need to do more for a refugee. You know, we need to send more money and do more things for a refugee crisis in you know, Southeast Asia. But let's not be too rough with trying to get a better trade deal with China, leveraging our position, leveraging our economic strength. That's just it, they think it's mean, you know, they, they think it's not right. We shouldn't be we shouldn't be economically bullying countries like like, well, not that we can really bully China. That's the problem. China's looking looking back at us and saying, OK, well, let's see what you've got. But it involves conflict. Negotiation is a form of conflict resolution. Right? You're negotiating. You're trying to there are inducements and there are also pressure points. So, of course, there's going to be some ways that China uh, is going to be upset with us. Of course, there are going to be certain things that we aren't able to get, but we're going to try to leverage other things. I mean, this is the back and forth, and it's not going to be perfect, but Trump, we return to the the basic idea here that Trump has been right in tackling this problem. And uh, maybe we had our friend on uh, earlier, Derek Scissors, that was it last week, I think, talking about how we should probably just establish a, a lesser trade relationship with China in general because they're not going to stop. They're not going to cave. Well, okay, but then maybe this is the way that we begin to do that conscious uncoupling via trade. Maybe that's the way that we have to approach this. And that would be all, that would work out fine too. You know, maybe we spend a little more time thinking about India, a multi-confessional democracy that, has a lot of upside and is taking a lot of the same, uh, a lot of the free market approaches that have led to the explosions of wealth in the rest of Asia over the last 30, 40 years. You know, India has gotten on a much better path. So you know, there are other, there are other alternatives here than just doing what the Chinese want, letting them rip us off. And Trump gets that. And he is right on that one. By the way, on the, on the Hong Kong protests, man, I saw this, uh, this, news story today about these weird forks they think might be a, these giant it's like a giant fork for a human that's electrocuted that they think the chinese riot police might be using in hong kong look kind of look kind of scary i'll be honest with you I was like whoa i wouldn't want to get poked with one of those uh, so this is this is obviously not going away i mean they have these guys training with this stuff 
There's there's photos of it online. And you know, I have to wonder, even if it's going to look terrible for China, you know, look look at what happened after Tiananmen Square. Did did the Chinese economy go up or down? Did trade with foreign countries go up or down? I mean, I think the Chinese figure that they can buy the world off again if they have to, and then it's more important for them to have uh, power and be in charge than it is for them to look good to the rest of the world, right? That, that they maintain stability is a more important thing. But here's, uh, again, you got these crowds in Hong Kong who are showing very clear affinity for the United States, and that that's something that affects all of us. I think we all think about this. We go, wow, this, these are our fellow brothers and sisters in freedom over, over in Hong Kong. It'd be nice if we could do a little bit more for them. And, you know, the administration... Hasn't really been doing very much, folks. It's been very, uh, very hands-off on this thing. Play clip nine. So... What are we going to do, if anything, to help? I don't know. I think that the administration is much more focused on a trade deal than they are about trying to push for some better, uh, you know, better treatment for the protesters in Hong Kong. Yeah, so I, I got to see what's going on here. I do still hold to my assessment that they will not, that they'll let this fade and they'll just use their, the Chinese Communist Party will use its continued application of behind-the-scenes soft power uh, in order to get its way in Hong Kong, which is really what this is all about, to have full control. uh, Allow Hong Kong to be a golden goose that's still laying eggs, but have total control over that goose. That's what they're trying to do. I think that's where we're heading here. I don't think you're going to see Tiananmen Part 2, but then again, you know, the Chinese... uh, we're dealing with a very different government mentality than we're used to in this country. We're dealing with a regime that is is brutal, is a dictatorship, and, well, I guess it's kind of an oligarchical dictatorship. We'll have to see. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show, team. Given my background and, and what I have done in the, in the, well, in the intelligence community in the past and now what I do often in the media it's sometimes the case that my phone all of a sudden starts just jumping off the table or the desk. And, and uh, if it's at a strange hour, it tends to be a most likely it's some news situation involving involving terrorism. And, and early this morning, I remember I got uh, that situation of my phone just Calls and calls coming in. I didn't know where they're from. Text messages saying, can you get down to the bureau? Can you get down to talk about this for different shows and channels and things like that? And usually that means terrorism. Uh, Usually that means that there's been a terrorist act. And and many times in the past, I've had to uh, go on TV and, and analyze what has happened. Fortunately, today was a false alarm. Uh, But the NYPD is now looking for a man who they believe left two rice cookers in a subway station in Lower Manhattan. There's a video of the of the suspect. Um, I, be, I think they believe he is he is homeless, and they 
they can't really even say definitively right now whether or not he left them there as a as a hoax terror attack or maybe the guy just left a rice cooker on the street you know is we, we've it, it's a it's a strange thing when because of what happened tricky with the boston marathon bombing but there have also been some other attempts uh, and a pressure cooker was featured if if memory serves in an episode of the or rather a one of the volumes of the terrorist literature produced by Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. AP, AQAP used to put out this Inspire magazine meant to inspire homegrown jihadists, and they had a whole thing on how to use pressure cookers and build build a bomb. I think it was called How to Build a Bomb in the Kitchen of Your Mom was the title of the uh, the article on the jihadist propaganda and so now we get all very scared, very understandably, very freaked out when it looks like there may be a pressure cooker bomb on a street corner or anything else. It turns out this was just a a uh, rice cooker. And I, I wonder if they'll really be able, unless they can prove that this guy had some malicious intent, you know, unless he was going on a uh, message board saying, oh, I'm just going to give people a good scare by leaving these. I, I mean, you know, I, I don't think you can criminalize putting a rice cooker in, in a trash dump or you know, leaving it on the sidewalk for someone else to pick up with the trash. Uh, maybe you can get a fine if you're not supposed to have it there, but I don't think, you know, this is, you start to get into, well, what's really the crime here? Um, but yeah, this morning there were, there were all these concerns about multiple explosive devices and my phone was completely, excuse the phrase, blowing up. Uh, my phone was, uh, was jumping off my bedside table trying to get me to take, call people I know at the NYPD and figure out what's going on here. Uh, turns out that this is nothing. But it's also a, a reminder of something that I don't believe Trump gets nearly enough credit for. It, or may, maybe it's not even about crediting Trump. Maybe there's something just bigger at issue here. But we lived with the very real fear of radical Islamic terrorism uh at any moment, at any point, anywhere in the country, really, we had uh, years during the rise of the Islamic State where the moment that you heard that there was a mass shooting, your first instinct or there was any kind of an explosion somewhere, your first in instinct was, oh, this must be a an ISIS inspired attack. And until a few years ago, the FBI had active investigations against would-be ISIS uh, lone wolves or cells all across the country. And that has just stopped. I mean, this is a good thing for America, a good thing for the world, but there has been such a drop-off in jihadism. And I bring it up because, well, one, it's, it's very noticeable for me because that was my focus in the intelligence community before I, I began working in media, before I started hosting this show with all of you wonderful people who listen. And that was a primary component of the analysis that I would do on, on TV a lot of the time. And now that's just gone away. And that's a good thing, certainly. The, the left wing media is trying to say that, oh, white nationalism is a similar scale threat. That's that's nonsense. There are no nation states devoted to the support of international white nationalist terrorism there is not uh, there aren't white nationalist terror training camps in in third world countries where they're teaching people how to create chemical weapons and how to you know kill mass massive amounts of people I mean those are all things you're dealing with with the global jihad. I actually had a friend that I saw earlier this week refer to the GWAT. Some of you will know I'm talking about the global war on terrorism. 
I had a buddy back in the day in the community who would say, you can't stop when the GWAT's hot. And the GWAT's not hot anymore. The GWAT is not not the same as it used to be. And we haven't even really thought about why. I, I The conventional wisdom, even until a few years ago, was that our fight against radical Islam was going to be a multi-generational fight. It turned out to be about a 20. Now, you could argue that we've been fighting against radical Islam since the founding of the American Republic. You don't, thank you, but you don't need to send me that the, you know, to the shores of Tripoli. It'll, I get it, right? I've, I've been studying this for a long time. But there has been a, a downturn, and, and it, it feels like there's a, an eerie calm right now in radical Islamic terrorism that is specifically targeting America. And I'd like to know why it is. I'd like us to look into what's going on here um, because we should know why is it that there has been this remarkable drop-off in radical Islamic terrorism? Why, why are we at this lull? Because if it's just a quiet in the storm, but it's temporary, perhaps now's the time to reposition ourselves and understand where the next major threat will come from. I do believe that it most likely is only temporary. I think that right now we have our focus on other things, on nation-state level threats, on geopolitical opposition, countries like China, Russia. By the way, China, such a bigger concern, a bigger economic and military challenge to us than Russia. Russia is a relatively, still a relatively small population, small GDP country compared to the other major players. We should really be thinking about how we can bring, and this is now anathema because the Russians have been so uh, demonized by the press, but to bring Russia and former Soviet countries more into the U.S. orbit, if possible, and at least have them, this is really a return to the great power politics of the 20th century, have us at least able to use Russia as a counterbalance to Chinese ambition. But no one thinks that way anymore because Russia's hiding under your bed along with Hillary Clinton. Hello! That's, I'm just saying, you know, it's, and I've seen the memes. I've seen the memes. That's all. I'm, I'm not saying that that happened. I'm just saying I've seen the memes. You know, I've seen what people have said about that. So I, I understand that most people are kidding, but some people really do think that the Clintons are somehow involved with in all this. And, until we get more information, I cannot definitively say one way or the other what happened to Epstein. Uh, but I would like, well, you know what? Actually, this is a perfect transition. Let's talk more about Epstein here in just, this was my way of saying radical Islamic terrorism is going to make a comeback. Just be, be aware, be ready for that. And uh, we've got more coming up. In my opinion, the only way in which the hyoid bone and cervical vertebral bodies would have been broken in a suicidal um, scenario would be for Epstein to have been on the top bunk and to have literally hurled himself off. A hyoid bone fractures are seen only in about uh, two, two and a half percent of the suicidal hangings. Cervical vertebral fractures are not generally seen uh, in uh, hangings. The leaning into suicide scenario, which had first been suggested, um, that would not, in my opinion, have led to a fracture of the hyoid bone and one or more of the cervical vertebrae. So that's Dr. Cyril Wecht, who's a forensic pathologist on the Epstein suicide. 
I would note a few things here. One is that it has been a week and we really haven't gotten that much by uh, way of of info about this entire Epstein situation yet. I, I think there's still more that we should know at this point than we do. Um, as This is something of an aside, but it also is a reminder of how doctors, we think that doctors, or I should say, we are led to believe at a young age, and I think this is changing now, that doctors are these, these high priests of medicine, and they have this knowledge that is imparted on them from their just you know, decades and decades of years in school and residency and, in, and all this stuff. And look, I get it. I mean, they're world-class surgeons, the people that do amazing stuff and all that. But, you know, doctors are people too. They disagree with each other. They often have differential diagnoses. And I, I just think it's interesting that you see people who point to one doctor who says this is likely a suicide and then you can point to another doctor who says it's likely not a suicide based on the fact pattern of the uh, breakage of certain bones the hyo hyoid bone i think it is i don't know i'm not a yeah hyoid bone i'm not a doctor i don't play one on radio it is a remarkable series of coincidences that we're supposed to accept in this epstein suicide um, and I'm already starting to be concerned. I've been concerned all along. They're going to make this whole thing go away. But media attention has just dropped down a lot. There's just not that much interest in looking into this. There's just not that much that it seems that anybody particularly cares to find out about this. Uh, now, maybe that might be a function of there needs to be new information. They need to look into more of this stuff. But I can't help but think that there are some organizations out there. There are some media organizations that just clearly don't want to spend a lot more time on this. They don't want to look much deeper. And I, I've tried to establish for you some uh, baseline assumptions going forward in this so that we don't have to go and think to ourselves later, are we crazy or what? Because if you establish a red line beforehand, you know that you're not then after the fact, rewriting your expectations so that you can get all spun up with a conspiracy theory. So here's one of them. And I think I mentioned this a little bit yesterday, but I want to really make it quite clear where I stand on this. If after the thorough investigation, which we're told is happening of Epstein's properties, his online communications, his whatever digital footprint he had online, if after they go through all of this, there is not a single piece of criminal, criminally relevant evidence against a high-profile individual, despite the fact that we know, or we have been told through lots of reporting from people that were close to Epstein, that he was surveilling individuals and running and, and building dossiers on them so he had a blackmail, he had leverage on them. I mean, that's what we have been told by the people closest to him. If after all the investigations, they came out, they just say, yeah, Epstein had some illegal stuff and, you know, Epstein was a really bad guy. But, you know, we didn't find anything else on anybody. That's a cover up. I do not believe that that's possible, meaning I don't know who is responsible for the cover up. Maybe somebody got into these places. I don't know what kind of contingency plans we're talking about. Remember, Epstein was worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And was able to do what he did for years and years without the force of law coming down on him. 
when you have those kinds of resources and that degree of both political connection as well as a, a psychological a, a ruthlessness that you will just do whatever you want, get away with it, you'll clean it up later. Uh, what, what is this guy not? What was he, I should say, now that he's not with us anymore? What was he not capable of? What, what's really beyond the pale, given what we already know about him? So I, th- this point, though, about the, the inability to unearth new evidence, with, including high-profile people, I'm sorry, that means that there's a cover-up. And I don't know who is specifically responsible for it, but I think there are people in the government that are not looking at this very hard. And, you know, we, we keep talking about the conspiracy theories this week. I would note that, you know, Hillary Clinton more or less was able to get away with, oh, she was able to get away with it, but for she almost never had to answer at all for running a, a private homebrew server using, uh, while she's Secretary of State and running classified information through it on a regular basis. If you had told me before that came out that any, any uh, cabinet official was doing something like that, I'd say that's just too crazy. That's too stupid. There's just no way anyone with a high-level security clearance and important government responsibilities would be that reckless. That's a degree. That's an absurd degree of recklessness. And look at how the media put all these people, all these, all these just idiot hacks on TV. Oh, it's not classified unless it's marked classified. That's not true. But they put all these people on and they, they, they did everything they could to run interference for Hillary. And they try to make it seem like what she did wasn't really as egregious as it was because they were assuming she was going to get to be president and none of this would matter. And then when all when it was all said and done, it fell upon James Comey to just be like, yeah, we're not going to charge her or we're not going to recommend that charges be brought by the DOJ. That's all it took. Flagrant violations of the law, countless times, well, not countless, it was over 100, I think, is what they finally came to, but many, many times. And they made the whole thing go away. It's like Hillary never did anything wrong, never even had a clearance suspended, faced zero justice. Now, I understand what Epstein is accused of is is far more egregious and and uh, serious than what Hillary was accused of. I'm not comparing the severity, but I am merely saying that in the context of a very powerful, connected person who is politically useful or in the case of Epstein, perhaps could be very politically damaging to one side. We've already seen how the apparatus functions. We've already seen what the reality of. Our justice system is so given what happened with Hillary and the emails and the though the special treatment she got and this was with the entire country watching how unthinkable is it really that they're told look Epstein think about what the discussion would be like with some with some senior individuals who are the ones really in charge of of the uh, Epstein investigation out DOJ they would say all right look you know we're gonna Epstein was a bad guy but you know he's already been taken care of one way or another, he's already off off the grid. He's off the off the map. So why don't we just make sure that we have a lot of derogatory information about Epstein? That's great. But if any, we don't want to sully anyone's reputation. We don't want to sully any former 
senior politicians in the U.S. government or perhaps allied politicians for other countries or any, you know, we, we don't we don't know. So let's just try to keep that stuff on the side because Epstein's not trustworthy. So whatever evidence you may find, let's just side pocket that. Does anyone think that conversation is really that Im- impossible to have? I'm not saying it is happening, but is that beyond the scope of I mean, it's what they did with Hillary. Yeah, let's just pretend like what she did wasn't illegal, that she didn't destroy evidence, that she wasn't desperate to hide all of this. Let's just act like that didn't happen. Come on. She's going to be president. No big deal. The system isn't what we've been told it is, my friends. There are not a bunch of non-political, angelic, very, very good judgment-laden individuals who are making determinations about these things. It's a lot of flawed bureaucrats who often, because the bureaucracy produces its own ideology, are left-of-center establishment uh, statists. So I'm just, I, my main takeaway here is if, they're, if they tell us this investigation is over or if it just drags on forever without, that's another way. They just slow roll it. You know I will go back. I'll play this show for you on her again. You know there is a cover-up. It is not credible. It is not plausible that when they go through Epstein's homes, they do not find any blackmail information on any important, powerful person. That is not credible. I, I will not believe that if that is what they're going to end up telling me here. So we've established that. We must not forget that fascist rallies like the ones scheduled for August 17th are interconnected with recent domestic terrorist attacks committed by white men on communities of color and religious minorities. These fascist white nationalists have sponsored monthly hate rallies in Portland during the summer since 2017 under the guise of exercising their free speech and assembly rights, creating false equivalencies between violent white nationalists and those willing to defend our city against their violence is unacceptable. Pandering to a national climate that accuses Portland of being soft on Antifa is unacceptable. There is no uh, but but I think I think we've heard enough here from from this. Uh, I, I will ask our friend Andy No, who exactly is doing all this uh, talk about fascism in America, the rise of fascism. But I think I've heard enough of how Portland isn't, in fact, soft on Antifa because quite clearly is. We got the man who knows more about this than anybody else with us now. Andy No, who's an investigative journalist, he's at uh, Quillette. He joins us to tell us the latest. Andy. Uh, first off, you, you were attacked by Antifa at a rally recently and pretty severely injured. Can you just give us an update on, on how are you doing and what was the aftermath and the after action, if any, from from law enforcement on that assault from an Antifa rally against you? Yeah, so we're going on seven weeks by Saturday and there's not been a single arrest. So uh, I have not seen any efforts by the Portland police to... Um, to see justice and all this, uh, the people that beat me and robbed me left me with a brain hemorrhage. Um, so I'm still waiting for those people to be identified if they ever will. And tell me about what the 
First of all, do you, who was that uh, that woman who was speaking? That wasn't the mayor of Portland, right? Was she just an organizer? The one who was talking about all the fascism across America? Yeah, so that speaker that you just played, that sound clip sounded like it could have been from an Antifa spokesperson. Actually, it was at a Ted Wheeler Coalition event yesterday where the mayor spoke at and sponsored, where a whole bunch of community activists were invited to come uh, to speak in front of the cameras. It was a PR event. It was billed as an event to denounce violence ahead of the um, planned protests on Saturday. But uh, as, as we all just heard, one of the speakers who was given a platform basically uh, rationalized anti-force violence. And in my opinion, is radicalizing people to come out in two days. Oh, tell me about what's what what's happening this weekend. What what is this rally? Who's going to be there, and uh, what what's expected? And are you yeah, going to be there? So, okay, so Portland is bracing for potential serious violence on Saturday. So Antifa and other far left activists are rallying the public yet again to physically confront and counter the Proud Boys and various other right wing groups who have announced that they're coming here. The whole situation is a powder powder keg, and I don't say that lightly because the uh, the protest on Saturday looms in the shadows of the two, uh, two recent mass shootings, one by a far-right ideologue in El Paso, the other a far-left Antifa sympathizer in Dayton, Ohio. And there are fringe elements on both sides who are broadcasting their desire for bloodshed. The police are severely understaffed and... The police chief um, recently stated that they might have to ask the governor to send in the National Guard. That's how potentially dangerous Saturday could be. And and are you going to cover this, or are you still in recovery from your head injury and are going to stay away? Um, I'm working on recovery, and because I am still receiving ongoing credible threats of violence, um, just for security reasons, it's not good for me to comment about where I will be on Saturday. I hope you understand. Fair enough. Oh, of course. Um, yeah. But let me ask you this, Andy. Uh, do you, when, when you've spoken to uh, city political leadership and, and law enforcement in Portland in the past, do they just deny that Antifa is a problem in this city? Or do they... What, what is the attitude of the authorities in Portland at the reality that they have this group of black-clad lunatics running around attacking people and causing mayhem on the streets because they think they're fighting imaginary rise of fascism in America. So I've been very careful to not fault the rank-and-file officers who are following orders in the many times that I've reported Antifa assaulting me or doing other criminal activities uh, within sites of police, they don't do anything. And I know that they are following the um, what they've been told to do for that day, which is to not intervene because it could escalate into a potential riot with Antifa. The thing is, um, I haven't received any justice going, going on nearly seven weeks now since what happened to me. And that even with that event placing all that pressure on the city because of the publicity. They still haven't done anything from what I know. And so um, the Hamid Dillon is my lawyer, and we've um, started a legal fund because we're trying to 
long time. We're doing our own independent investigation. So if there are listeners who want to get involved in helping me seek justice, um, please check out the, uh, the link that's posted on my social media. Andy, no, everybody. He is the guy who is out there often on the front lines covering uh, Antifa. Andy, before we let you go, I just want to know, why Portland? Why? I mean, is Antifa getting more active in other cities, too? I mean, I know there are posts online and there's this whole cyber community of the anti-fascist left and all this stuff. But why is Portland the, the center of this activity? It's because it's a progressive monoculture. There's, people don't hear counterpoise. They don't hear countering ideas. And as you, you played right at the beginning, you have community leaders who are endorsed by the mayor and those who are in the upper echelons of leadership here who rationalize and sympathize with the anti-sub violence. Oh, that's crazy stuff. Andy, whatever happens, and I know we don't know what you're going to be up to or not this weekend, but... Just stay safe, all right, because I know you've been out there, and they, they know who you are, as you well know. So just keep your head down and make sure that you get well and check in with us and let us know how you're doing when you can, all right? Andy know of Quillette, everybody. Thank you. All right, team, we'll be, uh, we'll be back in just a minute. I guess this falls in the category of a, of a public service announcement, but I think it is very important to keep your undergarments clean and to change them frequently. I thought we as Americans were all on the same team here when it came to clean, tidy whities boxers, undershirts if you wear them. Turns out I was a little bit mistaken. This new story in the Daily News says that nearly half of Americans have worn the same pair of underwear for two or more days. Out of a 1,000 people responding to an informal poll conducted by the underwear maker, 45% admitted they had worn the same pair of undies for two days or more, with 13% said they had worn the same pair for a week or more. Wow. That's, uh, that's a bit surprising, I have to tell you. Uh, Tommy John said men were 2.5 times as likely as women to wear unwashed undies for a week or more. 20% of men, 8% of women. Uh, though perhaps not aesthetically pleasing, going a day or two with the same pair is not a health deal breaker, according to NYU microbiology and pathology professor Philip Tierno. Uh, he advised against wearing the same skivvies for longer than that. So it can actually become a, a hygiene issue. As long as they function properly and you wash them, there's no holes, you can use them again. There's no end period except when it's mechanically just dis- okay. So, oh yeah, here we go. Underwear sits next to skin containing E. coli, so there's always going to be E. coli building up. This is why you know cleanliness is like is next to godliness. You got to keep that underwear clean. John, are you somebody that likes the that do you go synthetic boxers like this the different polyester kind of like quick dry stuff? I or go you with do cotton. cotton. You're a cotton boxer guy. See, I I think that you, I think synthetic is is the way to do it. I got switched over to it years ago. Actually, when I was in the when I was in the CIA, I had some buddies that are like, "You're gonna go to you're going to Iraq. You want to wear this quick dry underwear?" And I'm just gonna tell you, it's actually really. Have you ever tried it, John? It's really. I handy. have not, but I'm always concerned that those uh, those types of underwear are uncomfortable or may chafe. 
Nah, man, you got to get the boxers. I actually will say ex officio makes boxers that uh, are like, you can essentially wash them in your sink if you want to. And they're super comfortable and they quick, they're quick drying. And honestly, if they're, it's a fantastic company in general, but their boxers are like the best things. You'll, it's, it's life changing, man. I, I think that boxers, especially in the cotton boxers in the summer, can get uh, very bunched up, and you know, once they get a little bit damp from all the running around, spreading freedom, and saving America that I do, it's it's not a good deal. But anyway, I, I have to say this this study is not important, but it is an opportunity to talk about something silly on a Friday. So I figured we lead into it a little bit. Uh, are you an undershirt with uh, with dress shirt guy, John? I used to be, but I I don't with I don't the do dress shirt. Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't do that anymore. Huh. It's interesting. Do you, and you go cotton on the undershirt on the dress shirt? Uh, I usually go cotton on the undershirt. Sometimes I wear a tank top under a, under a dress shirt, depending if huh. it's summer. Interesting. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a guy who tries out all kinds of new things. So if any of you have any interesting suggestions here on what one should do in a hot climate, I, I think that I think that I've, that going with the synthetic fiber is the way to go. But they're probably making new new cool stuff I don't even know about right now. So there's all kinds of stuff going on here. John, what do you got planned for the weekend? We only got a minute here before we got to go into roll call. I'm gonna try and get as much rest as I can because <laughs> you know that I work a lot of hours on the weekend. Yeah, you're like you're like the radio, uh, like a, a radio cybernetic organism or something. After right? I leave you, here, you... I'm going to uh, an iHeart affiliate downtown in Tribeca. Oh wow, look at that man! We're working hard, John. What's what is the top of your Netflix queue right now? I haven't even had time to do any entertainment stuff like Netflix. Oh. Um, what about you? What are you looking forward to? I mean, I think I'm going to watch uh, this weekend. I I can't even get through a full episode of Woo Assassins. I thought I just stunk. So I, I might uh, I might do a doc. You know, I might be kind of fancy this weekend. I might decide to land to a documentary. You know, hang out a little bit with that. Find one. There's a documentary about a free climber, a guy who does free climbing that's on Netflix that I want to check out. I forget what it's called. So I think I might do that. Oh, look what time it is. It's roll call time. Stay right there. The show ain't over yet, folks. Keeping it real. It's time for roll call. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. That's the way we roll call over the weekend. Yeah. Aren't you psyched? I'm psyched, everybody. It's going to be a fantastic weekend because everybody's working for the weekend. It's late summer, so it is time to get in your last-minute summer fun. The kids will be in school soon, though, so that'll be, that'll be good, right? That means more free time for a lot of you moms and dads out there. Uh, so let's see what we got going on here. Cheryl writes in first on the roll call. Buckman, original Saturday squad. Wow, she even knows my full name. Always listen and enjoy every day on the podcast. Uh, fret not, my brother. Peaky Blinders returns August 24th on the BBC, so we won't be seeing it on Netflix till after the six new episodes broadcast. Best show on TV, but it takes a few episodes to get the Baroque down. The Shelby clan are some of the most memorable characters ever portrayed. Love Arthur. 
ranks with Breaking Bad and Vikings, a must-see. Keep up the valuable work you do on informing your listeners with what's really going on. God be with you and protect you always. Shields high, as always, Joel and Cheryl. Uh, well, thank you so much to both of you for the very kind message. And yeah, I'm glad you enjoy Peaky Blinders as much as I do. I think it's a fantastic show. I really like it. So, yeah. Um, I've also seen Vikings. I don't know if I've seen all the Vikings episodes. And I've seen every single episode of Breaking Bad. Uh, I still get a little choked up when I think about Agent Special Agent Hank Schrader. I, I know he just reminded me of a lot of guys I work with at the NYPD. You know? Could be kind of a kind of a hard ass, but but you knew he had your back at the end of the day, and he was a good guy. Uh, not to give anything away there. Keith writes, "It's Thule and rhymes with school plus e." Oh, it's Thule Air Base, huh? I did not. I would not have gotten that. It looks like Thule, obviously, because how the heck would I know? But Thule Air Base in Greenland. I have impressed a few people by knowing that it is Injerlik Air Base in Turkey and not Inserlik, which people always say. Injerlik, because in Turkey, the sea with the, the sea with the little thing underneath is like a J. Injerlik. And if you say it a little bit like Borat, you sound a little bit more Turkish. Uh, Peter, okay, also telling me how to pronounce it. All right, Thule. Thule Air Base in Greenland. My bad. My Let's see, this is the thing. There's the good news is that if I ever get like like, let's say producer John, who's in today for producer Mark, producer John, heaven forbid, if you were ever kidnapped by Al Qaeda and taken overseas to a, an undisclosed location, I could just put out the call to Team Buck over the radio. We would have a world class search and rescue team together. No problem. Just based on the listeners here, we could probably get people talking to their superiors at SOCOM or JSOC. I mean, what I'm saying, buddy, is we'd find you. So you got that going for you, which is nice. That gives me some peace of mind. Right. So happy to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Team Buck would not allow producer John to get captured behind enemy lines and have bad things happen to him in an orange jumpsuit. We would. I'd be like, guys, this is what happened. Producer John has been kidnapped by. Uh, wouldn't be Zarkawi. He's dead. By Baghdadi. And I'd, I'd, be, I'd say, send in your. Uh, your contact info to the Facebook inbox. And we're going out on a mission to save producer John. And we would do it. We would do it. I mean, we got all we got seals listening to this show, Rangers, all kinds of elite law enforcement units. It's good times. Jonathan Buck Shields. High, I love the show lately. You're on fire. He didn't write it like that, but I said it like that. I, however, find it irresponsible in this political climate that you don't advertise the decaf black rifle coffee for the libs. Libs are very sensitive. A coffee that's strong like black rifle will cause them to break the Twitter. Jonathan, you may have a point. I mean, there, there is, for those of you who, I think sometimes if you have a certain, certain heart conditions, they prefer the doctor will tell you to drink decaf. I think that's a thing. John, does that sound right to you? That's correct. If, uh, if people want to mess with you at a, uh, at a, like a Starbucks, let's say, they'll give, you, uh, they'll give you decaffeinated. Unless you ask for decaf, then they have to give you decaf because it could be a medical situation. Oh, I did not know that. Uh, so yeah, it's a, you, you, we do have black rifle decaf. So look, if you're, if you're a coffee drinker and you listen to this show, you got to do black slash buck. All right. That's the way to do it. Have it delivered to you. I want all of you drinking black rifle. That's what I drink. It's what you should be drinking. Kyle buck. Well, I agree with you. The whole Tlaib and Omar visa denial isn't really a big deal. I do appreciate the irony of people who advocate for boycotting Israel now complaining about Israel essentially boycotting them. I also find it amusing that the 
uh, that the same prominent Democrats who openly call President Trump a racist are now defending two representatives who clearly harbor anti-Semitic views. Just goes to show there's no excuse, uh, no exercise of principles in them, rather. It's just what they think is politically expedient. Uh, that is absolutely the case. Libs are libs have a lot of latitude. They have a lot of options because they have no principles. When you have no principles to defend, you can just do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. So they have tremendous tactical freedom, but they also stand for nothing that is worth standing for. So there's that, uh, at least when it comes to principles. Because you could say, oh, but what about this or that? What about the you know workers' rights or something? I'd say, okay, but they'll, they'll abandon that the moment it's no longer politically advantageous to them. Dan writes, Buck, first of all, I thought you kicked ass at Danville destruction with that pile driver on a serious note. What is that? Is there is there like a wrestler named Buck Sexton on a serious note? I just want to say that Republican leadership on the issue of immigration is just horrendous. We Mexicans are naturally conservative and the Republican Party does nothing to appeal to our right leaning nature by just messaging the truth of what the Democratic left is about. If the Republicans started a messaging campaign geared toward showing they are conservative, the fears of flipping states by legal immigration would be a non-issue. By the way, I'm referring to 30 to 80 year old voting Mexicans. Shields high, compa. I don't know what compa means, but that sounds cool. And uh, Dan is of Mexican descent and looks like he's a Marine. So that's awesome. Thank you for your service, Dan. Um, Yeah, I mean, the Republican Party is not good on messaging to the Latino community. I don't think that's I don't even think that's really debatable. I think that's pretty clear. So uh, you're correct in that. And I, I just you have to remember, though, there's such a, a information warfare advantage that the left has, the Democrats have because of the media being essentially an, an outlet that is attached to the DNC for the most part. So, yeah, that means that not only is their messaging perhaps more disciplined and more effective, but they have many, many more megaphones than we do. You got to remember that. Benny, uh, next up here, right? Uh, oop, nope, sorry. Kristen, a suggestion for a show you might like is Mindhunters on Netflix. The second season is just starting. It's about the FBI team that compiled the information on serial killers and began the Department of Profiling. Kristen, turns out I love the first series of, uh, first season rather, of Netflix, uh, Mindhunters. I thought it was very, very good. Uh, very entertaining, and I, I have a, actually have a family member who is former law enforcement, and uh, he said that a lot of the cases that they talk about and a lot of the details even are pretty accurate. So I, thought, I was kind of surprised. It's some pretty scary stuff. Uh, here we go. Whoop. This is a very, wow, this is really long. Thanks for sending it in, though. Uh, Mike writes, Buck, in the 60s, it was uh, Garner, Ted Armstrong on late night radio on those long forever highways in Texas and everywhere else I traveled against, traveled in the U.S., railing against the commies of the Soviet Union. Then it was Rush Limbaugh. Now it's you. Uh, Now it's in the morning with Rush and down in the night with Buck. Thank you and Shields High. Well, Mike, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate that. I'm in fantastic company. Uh, you know, there was only there was only one Rush Limbaugh. I mean, he is a truly there are not many people in this in this business of media that I would refer to as as gifted. 
meaning that they just have something that other people don't have. Uh, Rush is gifted. He has something that other people don't have in this radio business. Uh, he just, it's God-given. Tino writes, hey, Buck, well, Eric the Red, the famous Viking who initially uh, settled in Greenland is said to be the one who discovered America. Perhaps the president is a distant descendant and it's all coming together now. Yeah, I know there was some uh, initial Viking exploration of North America didn't really lead to very much. I think that they actually had a, a little bit of a, a small scale military confrontation with some of the native tribes in what would now be Newfoundland, I think. If my Viking history doesn't fail me, uh, you know, the Vikings were a very interesting people. Uh, they in, were responsible for some major things across major changes and uh, and technological advances, particularly with with sailing. Um, but they built some major settlements like Dublin, for example, in Ireland is a Viking town. York in northern England, a Viking settlement, a Viking town. Uh, the Vikings also that went east, and I can't remember the names of the rivers off the top of my head now, but the, the rivers that would get you down toward, say, the Black Sea and Constantinople, uh, this is how you have the Russian Orthodox, uh, Russian Orthodox Church is the continuation of the Eastern, or the Eastern Constant, Constantinople-based uh, Christian church, which was the continuation of the Roman church. They thought of themselves as Roman. And the Viking settlements along uh, what is now Russia were, and, and Ukraine actually specifically, were tied into the church and spread of it. And getting a little ahead of myself. It's, it's late on a Friday. I'm trying to get deep into the weeds of the history. I got to go back and check out some of the stuff. But you get what I'm saying. Um, so yeah, I'm pretty sure Kiev was a Viking settlement initially, but I could be wrong on that. I think they say Kiev, they don't say Kiev, but whatever. Graham bails me out for my babbling. You should watch the X-Files. It's on Amazon currently. It's a very fun show. It only starts going downhill after the movie was made. You dig the nineties TV, I'd hit it up. Also beard strong. Thank you, Graham. I, I like the beard. It's, uh, it's gotten to be pretty, pretty maintenance free, which is a fun part of it. Everybody, have a fantastic weekend. Thank you for listening. Take the opportunity for talking to a conservative friend. Say, hey, listen to this guy, Buck Sexton. His show is awesome. Because it is. Shield tie.